Welcome back to the LED Project Podcast. My name is Kyle Krieger, and I'm so thrilled today to be joined by Megan Forbes. Megan, how are you? Hi there. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. So we, uh, you, you are in Southern California. We were just talking about how it was very nice in Southern California and finally getting nice here in Wisconsin. So I definitely don't want to take up too much of your time on this Saturday morning. <laughs> um, to get us started, so you know what we want to do with the podcast, Megan, is just bring on teachers and and let them tell their story and and with the hopes that you know they'll inspire other teachers and and give them a few nuggets and things that can help them with their teaching craft. So could you just kind of give us the backstory of how you became a teacher and what you're teaching now? Sure. Um, I actually always said that I wouldn't become a teacher. I had a back going with one of my friends when I was a senior in high school. He said that I was going to become a teacher just like my parents. Both of my parents are teachers. Actually, my dad was my seventh grade science teacher. We grew up in a small town, so there was just the one seventh grade science teacher. So when I went to college, I was actually a music major, and I, I switched my, my majors around a little bit. But what I realized as I was going through college was that I just always wanted to share my knowledge with other people. I started taking a few history classes, and I just always wanted to talk about what I was doing in class. So once I got to the end of my college career, I decided that the next step was to become a teacher. And that was eight years ago that I graduated from college. And now I'm teaching middle school. I have sixth grade classes and eighth grade classes, and I teach history and English. Wow. So do you teach both subjects to both groups of kids? I don't. That would actually be really nice. <laughs> it would really streamline things, but um, the the middle school that we're at just has kind of a, a hodgepodge. So um, if you are able to teach a few different things, then they usually ask you to just to make the schedule work for everybody. So I've just got kind of a, a mix of, of grades and students. Nice. So do you have an English background as well as the history background, or did you just kind of get thrown in there? Well, as we were talking about this before we started the podcast, it's really difficult to get history jobs. For some reason, people just stay in those history jobs forever. So when I was looking for positions, there were no history positions. I actually have um, credentials. In California, You, after you graduate from college, then you start your um, teaching credential, and you have to decide which subject area you want to get it in or elementary school, but mine were in history and PE and there were just no history or PE jobs. Those are the, the, those are the two thing. worst. Yeah, <laughs> you just cannot, no one ever leaves. You know, if you think back to your high school or your middle school, the mm -hmm. PE and history teachers had been there forever. So there aren't mm -hmm. many openings. But what I would see on job postings was um, a, a need for like people who had history and English. And so then I just went back and added an English credential so that I could apply for those jobs. So you, sometimes you just have to do what you can do to get hired and get into your job. And then, you know, somewhere down the line, maybe somebody will retire and you'll get to slip into that dream position. But a lot of times you just have to take what you can get. Right. So in California, when you're talking about getting your credential, is it more classes or is it just taking a test to get the credential? Because I'm so fascinated by 
you know, how the different states do the credential. Because in Texas, once I got there, like I had to, if I could pay, if I paid $150 and I took a test over any content area and passed, I could teach it. Oh, okay. And California is crazy. <laughs> so we, we make people jump through a lot of hoops. So um, in California, I think that there's not like education degrees. Like there's no like elementary education degree. You just, you know, major in history or major in like liberal studies or something. And so then a credential is completely separate and it's usually one to two years and about 30 units. It's almost like another degree. It's completely separate. You do your student teaching there and um, yeah, you've got to run everything through the state. So, you know, we, they just take more of your money and time, but so, so <laughs> then very do you, well. <laughs> do you have a master's in, in teaching or is it just two years to get the credential? That's just to get a credential. And then I also, after that, did a master's in history, which was separate. Wow. That's that's crazy to me because like now in Wisconsin, any they've just moved now to any teacher with a license that is not like the novice license, which is one to three years, just got mm-hmm. placed onto a lifetime license. Oh wow! <laughs> They're like, we need you to stay. Please stay. Yeah, and it's it's just, I mean, it's crazy, and I'm so fascinated by by that because. You know, most of the colleges in Wisconsin and Minnesota, because I went to a small college in Minnesota, they have like mm-hmm. degrees that the degree I got in college start to finish was social sciences and history education. Okay. So, mm-hmm. so once I went through that program, I applied for a Minnesota license and a Wisconsin license, which I had. And then it was easy for me to transition and get my Texas license. But I, so you went to school like five or six years to be able to teach? Um, well, my credential was just one year. I had taken a few classes ahead of time, um, so that I could get into that program. You have prerequisites. You have to apply separately to a credential program. Um, and so then after that one year, then I could start applying for teaching jobs, but, um, I actually didn't get a teaching job the first year out of my credential. Uh, there, there were no jobs. They were doing lots of layoffs in Southern California. So, um, I unfortunately didn't get a teaching job right out of my credential program. See, and that's and that's another thing that's interesting to me too, because my my co-host and my my partner uh, Wilkie is in Houston, and the the large urban district that he works for in Houston, that's where we met. They're laying off hundreds, if not you know, like a thousand teachers. Oh my goodness! And it's just, oh. and I always wonder how in in those highly populated areas with a large number of kids who are, you know, low socioeconomic status and all that stuff who Mm -hmm. need great teachers, how these areas Mm -hmm. are cutting teachers. It always just blows my mind. It's, it's really difficult. Having gone through that process, you know, I never take my, my job for granted anymore. And if people um, ask about, you know, getting a teaching job, um, it, it's actually the rural areas a lot of times that I find that that are doing more of the hiring. So if you're willing to move or work somewhere else, then you have a better a better chance of 
finding a position. I was married at the time. And so, you know, we needed, I'm, I'm still married, but <laughs> when I was looking for a job, so, you know, we didn't have as much flexibility. We had to stay near where my husband's job was. So if you're a little bit more flexible with where you can move, it's probably going to be easier to find a job. But if you have something keeping you in a certain area, it can be a little harder. Right, right. And that's, that's a funny thing. Uh, we had, we had Joe Dombrowski on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he was talking about how when he goes and talks at colleges or talks to like newer teachers, so many of them tell them that they can't find a job, but they're looking like mm-hmm. in these super specific areas. They, a lot of times yes. he says they're <laughs> like, they want to, they want to teach in the district where they went to high school. And you know, that's, that's been the nice thing for me is I was, I was 25 when I moved and I was on a, you know, like single unattached, you know, and, and the only real issue was, you know, like my leaving my family was really hard, but then, Mm -hmm. you know, this last summer I was still single. So, you know, when I made the decision, like, you know, I really want to make family a priority it was easy. I, I came back and, and I was lucky to find a, I was lucky to find a job, but mm-hmm. once I had found the job, it was easy. Like, Hey, you know, I'm just gonna, I sold everything out of my house pretty much. I packed in my <laughs> car what I could take and I came back, you know, but, but like you said, it's interesting in those rural areas. So how far outside of LA do you have to get before you get to like a rural area? Um, it's, it's a ways out. You've, you've got to go pretty far. But I'm actually from Northern California, and my dad still works in that area, and so does my mom. My mom's a teacher, and my dad's an administrator. And so, you know, during that process while we were looking for jobs, my husband is actually a teacher as well. So there was a period of time when we were both looking for teaching jobs down here. And so my parents were like, well, you can just come up to Northern California in these really rural areas. And they were like, you can find a job easily. They're, they're always looking for teachers. We still have unfilled positions, but it's just a matter of where you want to live. And um, there is definitely a big difference in pay in those areas, although it's a lot uh, cheaper to live up there. So mm-hmm. yeah, there are a lot of things to consider Yeah, <laughs> because people tend to not move a whole lot when they're teachers. You know, you people tend to find a school and maybe only make one or two switches before they kind of stay in the same area for a while. So there's a lot to consider. Yeah. You know, and it's funny, I was talking with a few people and we've, we've asked the question, you know, in, I guess, I, I think we're probably close to the same age. So in our generation, like I grew up with teachers, like I bet 75% of the teachers I had had been teaching like 20 to 25 years and up. Like these were some Mine of the, too, I think these were some of the, like, I bet I had five, four or five teachers who had had my parents. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> so do you, do you see a lot of teachers, like, do you think a lot of teachers in the younger generation and younger than us see themselves doing that? Like being in a classroom 20, 25, 30 years? Hmm, that's a good question. I do personally, I want to, to stay in the classroom for a long time. I think um, some people want to move into administration or, um, you know, maybe have some kind of a side business that, that sometimes takes over. But 
or people just get burnt out and they just go into something else. But it's it's great to see teachers stay in it for a really long time and become really great at what they do. Yeah, and that's and that's one of the hopes because my my partner Wilkie and I we also have a nonprofit which you know through which we do teacher development and our main focus oh, is wow. really really like the the first one to three years of yeah. teaching because you know he and I come from different backgrounds like he is born and raised you know downtown Houston and I'm okay you know s- super small town Wisconsin like two thousand people no stoplights like my hometown <laughs> when we got a subway in my hometown like it was the biggest deal ever <laughs> sounds know? like my hometown yeah. yeah and then and then once you know we were we didn't come into teaching together but we were talking about our mentoring experiences and he, when he started he got this like unbelievable mentor and she was just super super helpful to him and, and supported him and i got a mentor that the only thing he did was have me come in and sign a piece of paper once a month that said that we had talked. Oh, geez. So yeah, that's, that's really the, the space we're trying to get into is because, you know, because like, like you said, if you get burnt out in the first, you know, three years of being a teacher, you, you haven't even gotten good yet. No. It, and there's, I think there's a lot of expectation right now, too, with all these teachers that people see on Instagram or on social media, and they think, like, I need to be that amazing right now but you've you know you're going to be in this job hopefully for 25 or 30 years and and you grow and of course you need to be competent right now you have to be competent and good at your job immediately but there are certain things that just come with time and you can't get frustrated if that hasn't happened for you yet in your second year of teaching you know yeah I look at I look at someone and I know I saw a post with you and her the uh, right on with Miss G. Uh-huh. And she like I've been following her story of this Gatsby unit that she's doing. Yeah, and I'm just she's like great at that. I'm just like blown away. And and there are like you said, there are so many teachers who are doing that awesome stuff. But I do love on the Instagram community though, there is that other side where there's you know, those same teachers are like, Yeah, I had a really terrible day and this I thought was gonna be really great. And it turned yes. out not to be great. And I, I think the authenticity of so many of the teachers that are on there really, really makes a difference. So to kind of yes. s- steer it in, in the direction we wanted to take it, what do you think is the state of education in America today? Well, I've done all of my teaching in, in Southern California, um, but even within kind of this small radius where I've taught I've seen so many different schools and it's it's sad to me that I can, you know, teach in, in one area where the kids are struggling and the, the teachers are struggling and the administration is frustrated and then just down the street where the socioeconomic level is higher, things are so much easier. <laughs> and that's that's frustrating to me to see that um usually it's just kind of that one factor that, you know, the parents make a little bit more money and they've got more time to help their kids with their homework or maybe resources to send them to tutoring and things like that. And it changes the success of the whole school and it changes the, like the atmosphere of the whole school. And 
while it's great that there are these schools that are successful and doing wonderful, it, it does make frustrated for the schools that aren't. And I, I wish that there was a better way to like bridge the things that are going well in, in certain schools and like infuse that into the schools that are struggling. Right. Right. So, you know, one of the things we, we definitely want to talk about is, you know, the, the social justice piece. So when talking about, you know, social justice and what you're talking about with, you know, equity in schools, what does that, what does that mean to you kind of riffing off of what you were saying about how you can have a great school and, you know, in one area and three or four blocks down the street, you can have a school that's really struggling. So what, what do you see as some of the challenges between those schools? Well, as a teacher, um, I think one misconception that, that I had, and I actually still kind of struggle with is that if you are a teacher that cares about social justice, you work in a school that's struggling and and you put resources into helping that school. And, you know, as we've talked about, you don't always get to choose necessarily where you teach. You've got to, you've got to go where there are openings and, and, and what works for you. So I've worked in those schools that, that are struggling. And currently I work in a school that is just on fire. They're doing great. Their students are doing great. They um, have really high test scores and they're, for the most part, you know, their behavior is, is really good and they're doing amazing things. And it was really hard for me, actually, when I first started there. I, I just started working there last year because I thought, what good am I doing here? Like, this, these kids don't need me. This is, maybe this isn't where I should be. This is, this is too easy. Um, but as I got to know the kids and got to know the community um, and got to know some of their teachers there, what we realized is, okay, if this is our situation, if we are working with these kids who have, in some ways, they have a lot of privilege, we need to be teaching them about the world around them. These are going to be the future leaders and they need to understand their position in the world and the good that they can do if they get this good education, if they, you know, start a company one day and if they're making money, they need to be aware of the the people around them and the world around them and the impact that they can have on the world. So that's really been my focus this year is to help my students see and become um, more of a, a global citizen and a part of their community. So, so then what does that look like? You know, how do you structure that into your history and, or your English classes? Um, I think it, re- it really starts with the teachers. And thankfully I have a couple of colleagues in the history department with me that really care about this issue. And so at the beginning of the year as a history department, we decided we wanted our students to do service hours. And so, you know, we just said, our, our kids need, need to be involved and they need to be looking around and seeing where there are needs in our immediate community. We live right near LA. We live in, well, I don't live where my students live, but my students live in an affluent suburb outside of LA. And so we wanted to help them and um, show them opportunities where they could volunteer and where they could help others. And in addition to that, um, the county of LA, they're, they're education department offers a lot of really great trainings for teachers about um, civil rights education and teaching students to be 
great citizens. So um, my colleague and I got a grant to pay for, you know, our subs and pay for this conference that we could go to. And we learned so much about how to infuse more civic education into our classrooms and into our curriculum and just how to make it a, a part of our school culture. So that's something we've been learning about and trying out this year. How, how, are, how are kids responding to it? They're great. They're they're wonderful. Um, did you teach middle school when you were in yeah. Houston? Uh-huh. Okay. So you know, middle schoolers care about fairness. They're obsessed with fairness. If you know <laughs> one student gets something that they don't get, then they're very upset when things are not fair. So if you can bring in issues of inequality and and fairness into your classroom, they're already going to be interested. They're already going to want to talk about it. Um, so for my students, it's been easy. And they, I have a, a, a population that is from all over the world. So in a lot of ways, like they, they understand that, you know, this little community isn't all there is to life or to the world. Um, but they, they love learning about other cultures and other people and, and people from the past and struggles from the past. So for me, it's, it's been great. They're super engaged. Do you, do you get any, do you and your college get any pushback from parents, other teachers, community members that you're, you know, kind of taking this citizenship piece a little farther than is normal? I kind of anticipated that maybe we would, and and people ask me that a lot, but um, no, <laughs> we, we really don't, uh, because what we're doing is just um, infusing even better content and even better education into our into our classes and. Our, our students love it. They're they're learning more. They're becoming more articulate. They're uh, becoming really good at citing evidence. And I think the parents love it, and, and the students love it. And it's it's less controversial than than people think. I, I think for some reason the term social justice kind of has a connotation of controversy. But who doesn't want their kid to be a better person, <laughs> and a more caring? Uh, open-minded person. I don't know. D- okay, so if if I understand right, LA's a pretty liberal city, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. That yeah. that has a ton to do with it. Well, yeah, <laughs> the, you know the area in which we live is is quite liberal. You know that's the funny thing. Like I I was in Houston, you know, and Texas is a predominantly conservative state, but you get mm-hmm. in in the cities like. Well, Austin especially, but Houston, there are pockets where, you know, it's very liberal. And then now I'm back in, you know, West Central Wisconsin, where it's, you know, predominantly conservative. And, you know, we did not the initial walkout after Parkland, but this most recent Mm -hmm. one on the anniversary of Columbine. And, Mm -hmm. like, I can't tell you how many kids... I heard say that it was stupid. Like, I don't get why people would walk out to protest gun control. And mm. I was so taken back by it because it wasn't what it was about. Like, it was this nice moment where one of, the, one of our high school girls, you know, for 17 minutes we went, we stood outside. We, nobody said anything except for this one girl who every minute read one of the names of the people killed at Parkland and a little bit wow. about them. 
And it was wow. such a nice moment. But like there was such pushback from the community that we were even doing that. And, mm -hmm. and I wonder how, like, so, so take an issue like that. How do you like approach that within your classroom to have, you know, those discussions? Yeah. Well, we, we had to be strategic in, in how we handled that as well. Um, so for me, there, there was a bit of a personal connection to the Parkland shooting. Um, I'm friends with Brittany, the five foot one teacher. And she, as it was happening, she had, we had like a, a group text and, and she let us know, like, there's a shooter at my school. So I, I saw this message during class and I, I didn't understand and my, my kids were doing something. And so I, I went over to my computer and just, just looked at the, the news and there was like a live feed, a live stream of what was happening at that school. And one of my students looked over at me and said, Mrs. Forbes, you look shook. And I was like, what? So, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And I, I didn't want to bring it up to my students yet because I, I didn't know what was happening. But, um, the next day in class, every Thursday, we have a, a circle. We, we do community circles. It's part of restorative justice. And um, I told them, you know, yesterday was a tough day for me. Uh, there was a tragedy at a school where my friend works and, and her students were killed and her colleagues were killed. And it was, it's, it's really shaken me up. And so uh, we talked about that in my classes. And I, so all my students knew kind of where my mindset was at and they, uh, were able to kind of see it through, through my eyes a little bit. And I went to my administration and, and talked about how I wanted to, to do something with our students to, to honor the victims. And so, um, on the one month anniversary, we did, we participated in the walkout. It happened to be at the same time as we had a break anyway. So, um, we wanted to do something kind of supporting the students who were there and honoring the victims. Uh, but you know, as administration, they, they did want to be cautious as well, and they didn't want to bring any unnecessary controversy. So, so they did ask me, you know, to be, to be careful. And so we wrote letters of support to the, the students at, in Parkland. So we just really wanted to frame it in, in a way where, okay, we can do something productive here. We can show our support and give our students just a chance to think about the world beyond themselves and empathize with other people and put into words their support for others. So we just, we wanted to make sure that it was productive for our students, give them a chance to kind of work through their feelings and work through their fear and that's how we handled it at my school. And I think, and that's a, a great way. And I guess as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking, so you have, you said you have a very diverse, like student body, right? Both mm -hmm. ethnically and nationality wise. So as you're having these conversations, do, do they just kind of understand that it's okay for people to be different? Or is that something you have to really explicitly talk about how, you know, my, you know, one student's uniqueness doesn't diminish from another student's uniqueness or. Right. Yeah. I think, well, my students are in a bit of a 
a different environment. I actually, I'm very interested in just kind of watching to see how, you know, I just kind of watch and learn from my students. Um, most of my students are Chinese and some are, you know, recently from China. Some of them are born here and a lot of my students are from India. And so we also have some students from like the Middle East. Um, so we have kind of a, a different population than maybe most teachers in the U.S. have. Uh, but I learn so much from them and they uh, they bring in, they're, they're proud of their culture. So I, I teach ancient sixth grade history or ancient world history for, for sixth grade. And um, they they get really excited when we when we come to their culture. So you know we did ancient India, and so all of my students from from India or who are Indian brought in all these books from home that I'd never seen before. Books about Hinduism and books about Hindu gods, and um, just kind of books that are like fairy tales that they heard. Um, the stories growing up and they were just thrilled to bring those in. And as we talked about Hindu gods, they, they would speak up all the time and they had no, um, there was definitely no feeling of like shame or anything like that, you know, as, as if they were different or something. And, um, all the other students listened to them. And I remember kind of having to cut off a few students who, who were not Hindu. They were Chinese and, um, I said, you know, your, your time is coming. It's like, we're going to do ancient China. And then you can tell us all about your culture too, but let's listen to them for, for this unit. So they're, they're very excited to talk about the things that they know about their culture. And, and I don't see other people putting them down for sharing those things. That's so, I mean, and I love that so much, but I, I guess the question I would want to ask, so Say you're in an area that's, you know, like me, where I, it is 99 and some plus percentage white kids. Or, you know, you're in an area like Houston where it's predominantly Hispanic and African-American in the schools that I taught mm-hmm. at. What advice would you give to those teachers for how to kind of approach these topics and, and, you know, start to just plant the seeds of citizenship and social justice in their, in their classes? For me, it always comes down to three things, um, empathy, education, and exposure. And a lot of kids just by no fault of their own don't have one of those pieces. So for example, like your students might not have the exposure to groups of people who are different from them. So then They've got to focus on on the other two. They've got to focus on education and empathy. And so I think it's it's really important to try and build up those those two pieces. Um, but I think if there's any way that they can obtain some kind of exposure to other cultures, maybe by going on a, a field trip or to a museum, or even through just things now like like YouTube, like watching YouTube videos of people who come from somewhere different than they do or have a different life experience than they do, or even, you know, watching movies or reading uh, books from the perspective of somebody that is different from them. I think they, they really need that exposure. And then they're, they're all interconnected because as you're exposed to these other cultures, you, you do become more educated about 
the the intricacies of that culture, not just the stereotypes. And as you learn more about them, you you come to care about them as people. And so I I really think that as an educator and just as a human in general, uh, you always want to keep those three things in mind: empathy and exposure and education, and try and get as much of those three things as you possibly can for yourself and for your students. Gosh, that's 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 really good. That the empathy, education, exposure. I mean, because where I'm at, you're you're absolutely right. The exposure piece is is the piece that's lacking. And I live in a very affluent place where you know they the, the kids get to go on lots of trips and you know they get to do stuff. But there's very few of them that are are being exposed to to other cultures. Like <laughs> there's one. You know, we have maybe two or three exchange students and a few and a couple students who are Honduran and you know the kids like those kids but they're not really trying to understand and experience you know the other cultures of the kid they're more and I don't want to say they're more for show I I don't that's not exactly the Mm -hmm. right phrasing I want to use but you know, there. And there is a big difference with like exposure. You know, if, if you just kind of have one or two students, I feel like that's really not exposure to like the community. Like I have, you know, there's a strong Indian community at my school. So I've got exposure to that. But if it was just like one or two students, it's not really, you don't really get the same effect. Yeah. Right. So to kind of bring it back around to, to teaching history. So in a time like we're in where you know, society is changing and there's so much going on. What is the importance and the value of of teaching history? I think that our classrooms are the place where I'm focusing all of my energy, at least. And I I really feel like teachers need to be focusing their energy. Um, We do leader in me. We we have that program at our school. We're a leader in me school and it's based on Stephen Covey's uh, kind of philosophies about leadership. And, and one of the things he says is that you, you focus on your circle of influence. And so I think sometimes if you're one of those teachers like me, and I sense you are as well, where, you know, you, you kind of just want to like change the world and, and you want everything to be better and you, you want to have an influence on everything. Uh, it can be frustrating when, when you see problems that you have no control over. So what I really try to do is just focus on my circle of influence. So I try to focus on my students, maybe on people who I inter- interact with on like Instagram, but I just put my my energy towards that. And so one thing that I've been doing this year in my history classes and my English classes as well that I learned from the training that I went to earlier in the year is something called structured academic controversies. And I'm, I have a half written blog post about this. <laughs> that, um, I will, I can try and get that up as soon as possible. But um, structured academic controversies are great because they give students the opportunity to have a conversation about something where they disagree with the other side and come out at the end of it with a better understanding and without getting in a fight, hopefully. <laughs> so the way that it's set up is that ideally you, you have uh, groups of four. Two people are on one side, two people are on the other. And as the teacher, you assign them their position. So you really don't know what everybody in the class actually thinks. You know, you're, you're sort of playing a part. So 
Um, one that we did recently with my sixth graders was, uh, was ancient Athens really a democracy or not? So I would tell two students, okay, you're going to argue that it, it really was a democracy. Tell the other students, you're going to argue it wasn't. So, you know, there's, there's really no getting mad at each other because I don't know what you really thought. I, I just gave you your position. Right. Um, and then the hardest thing about this as a teacher would be to come up with all the evidence yourself. So I never do that. I get it online. So um, reading like a historian is a great website that has so much information and they've got the structured academic controversy already ready to go. You just make an account there. It's free. Print it out. So I printed all of the um, sources for my students. There are five sources. So for one day, they just did research and they read through the sources and um, kind of pulled out evidence that they wanted to use to make their case. Then the next day, we did the actual discussion and it's very, very structured. So one side gets to talk for two minutes. The other side cannot respond verbally. They cannot say anything. Um, then we allow the other side to talk, but they actually really aren't responding. They're just making sure that they understand the other side's position. So they have to say, what we heard you say was, and then they can clarify any misunderstandings. Then the second team gets to go while the first team does not get to respond. Then they clarify. Then they regroup with their partner and come up with their, their next points that they would like to make. So it really, you know, cuts like the emotion and the insults and that kind of stuff out of a controversial discussion. And it places a lot of emphasis on listening, making sure you actually understand what the other person was saying. So many disagreements happen just because you didn't really understand what the other person was trying to say because you weren't listening. So um, those have been great. I think, let's see, this year I've done maybe four or five. I think next year I'm just going to do them like constantly and just give my students as many opportunities as possible to have discussions with people with whom they disagree, respectfully, practicing listening. And then at, at the end, they, they're allowed to kind of drop their, their character and they can just talk honestly about the points that were brought up and they can come to uh, a conclusion in the end and it's okay still if they disagree right you know when i and as you talked about that it reminds me of a, a assignment like that we did in one of my english classes in high school the teacher gave us the opportunity to debate whether or not we actually landed on the moon oh and that's me a good and, one. me and another buddy were on the side that we did and Two, two of our other friends were on the other side and that was the most like research the four of us had ever done. Like we were mm -hmm. so prepared. I even like I had found this t-shirt at Goodwill that was like a, a moon landing t-shirt and I wore it for the debate. Oh, and wow. <laughs> it was, it was super fun though, but that's a really yeah. structured controversy. I mean, I think that's, I mean, you could use that in just about any class. You wouldn't have to even use it in a history class. I think that's a really... Right. Really interesting. You could use it in science. You could use it in, um, you know, English is great and history is great. And I think that's one thing that as like teachers, we have to admit is that there are a lot of issues that we teach that don't have an easy answer there that people do disagree about. So, you know, let's, let's talk about those things and let's do that research. And like you said, if a kid is, you know, going to have to go argue it the next day, they're probably going to do more research than they might've done just for a, a paper or something. They have to articulate their, 
their arguments and use evidence. And my students had to write down like four pieces of evidence. So, you know, I had worksheets and stuff that go along with it. It's not just a, a free for all, but um, it's a great way to learn and a great way to just practice disagreeing with people and still respecting them and still respecting what they say. And I remember at the end of this one, you know, there were some students that were like, no, Athens really was a democracy and other students who disagreed. And um, they they were just convinced by different evidence. Okay, well, you guys saw the same sources and you just really thought that this made a lot of sense and you thought that this made a lot of sense. So both of you have arguments that you can defend. You just came to different conclusions. That's okay. We can end it right there. We don't all have to agree. That's fine. Yeah. And I, and I think that's such a good point, you know, like you said, to get kids to be able to talk with, without yelling. And, and the thing that, that I noticed with my high schoolers is, and this is whether it's in class or it's outside of class, like if they can just prove what, if they can give one piece of evidence that disproves an argument, they think that their argument is correct. And I'll give you an example. So like I was, I work out in the morning before school at 5.15. Our school starts at about 7.30. So when I'm getting done, like at 6.15, a cup, I let a couple of the high school boys in because they want to work out before school too. And one of my high school boys was like, I don't get why you work out because it doesn't make you a better teacher. <laughs> and I just stopped and I was like, what? <laughs> and he goes, this is you working out. Is, it doesn't make you a better teacher it doesn't impact your teaching at all. Everything you learned to be a teacher, you learned when you were in college. And I just kind of go, that doesn't make any sense. That's one of the, that's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard someone say. He's like, whoa. (laughs) Yeah. And I go, how do you, how do you prove this? He's like, cause I've seen a fat teacher before. (laughs) And I just, and that was when I just walked away from the conversation and he tried to, I saw him later in the day and he tried to, to argue that point to me again. And I just was like, man, I'm not going to do this with you because it's not productive, but. What is strange. Well, and so it seems like his, the, you know, the argument that he's trying to have isn't even so much about the argument. Like he wants like attention or he's trying to get you to say something else. Yeah. Like he has, he has a different purpose for this. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and the backstory, the backstory was, you know, he's, he and another one of the basketball players were coming in to work out and they were doing, you know, they come in and they, they don't really warm up and they throw a bunch of weight on and they're doing bench press. And I'm like, guys, that's not smart. Like, let's warm up. Let's do things the right way. They go to a different exercise that, you know, they're like on this machine working out their chest again. And I just asked him like, how is this helping you be a better basketball player? Uh okay. And he was like, blah, da, 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 da. you know, I got to get stronger so I can rebound. And this kid's like six, all of 6'4". So he, he was the tallest kid on our team. And then another, this kid's a senior. So another kid who's a sophomore, who was the best player on the team, like MVP of the team, who's like mm. maybe a little over six feet tall. I go, so then who led our team in rebounds? And it wasn't, it wasn't the tall kid. It was mm. the shorter kid, and he just, I think, like you said, he got mad that I that I questioned him on his theory, mm-hmm. so so that's what precipitated it, but 
But coming back to you know the the structured controversy, I think it'd be so good because I the and I can think back to when we were doing the walkout, like there were just kids yelling about it, and not like mm-hmm. in and that's not like a metaphor. They were actually yelling, like calling mm-hmm. people stupid, mm-hmm. and I don't understand. And I wish we would have had that to be able to have those discussions and and our administration decided not to address it as a whole. Not hmm. not to say to kids like, hey, this is the real purpose of this walkout. And it ended up that they had the teachers read this little blurb on the day of. But a lot of teachers, you know, along with me, we really felt like it was a missed opportunity to where we could have yeah. like had real conversation with the kids about, you know, the situation and how, you know, it affects because ultimately deep down whether the kids think you shouldn't take guns out of school or you should, there's a lot of kids that are scared. Yes. And, and, and they're afraid to, to talk about that and they don't have a way to talk productively about it. Right. So that's one really good thing about this structure is if, um, well, the, the training that we went to, um, suggests that, you know, you, you do it in once in every class. So maybe if everybody takes history, you do it at least once in every history class so that students have exposure to that um, structure. So then um, there was a school who had done this, and I, I think it was like Anaheim, somewhere around this area in Orange County. And their mascot was a rebel, like a, like a Confederate rebel, and they had um, like a Confederate flag in their images that were around their school and, you know, and they played sports and stuff. So, you know, students were, were realizing they didn't really want that to be their, their mascot, but the way that they handled that was that they had a large, um, school wide kind of a big meeting and they did it in the form of a, of a structured academic controversy and allowed people from both sides to, you know, articulate their, their arguments and students had already had so much practice doing that, that it was easier to, to bring this big group of kids together and, and community members, you know, who are upset and and emotions are a part of it, but they're able to kind of channel that just into this productive conversation where you really do listen to the other side. And so that was a big win for, you know, taking this and, and applying it to real life and real life situations where people are, are truly upset or truly scared or truly don't understand why you're walking out and feel like their rights are threatened by you walking out and, and being silent. But talking through it and articulating your arguments and bringing up evidence, I think is always the best way to go. And avoiding it just allows things to fester and allows people to demonize the other side and not actually listen to what they have to say. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really, really nice way to put it. So I want to kind of start wrapping up here because I want to make sure I'm respectful that you get to spend your Saturday. So, um, just a few kind of, these are just general life questions. You can apply them to teaching or you can apply them to life. So, um, what was the best advice you've ever been given and who was the person that gave you that advice? Hmm. That is a good question. I remember seeing a quote once about teaching that said, it never gets easier. You get better. And I really liked that. Cause I think as you know, right when I was 
started teaching and you're so overwhelmed with grading and with all of the requirements you have to cover. And I just thought, gosh, does this ever get easier? And just reading that really helped me like, no, it doesn't, but you get better at it. You get more organized, you get more efficient. And that really helped me. And I can't remember who told me that, but that's what I always keep in mind when I get overwhelmed. Well, and I love that advice too, because how, how many other places could you apply that to, you know, whether it's, you know, getting on a health regimen and working out or I'm not, I'm not married, nor am I a parent, but I can imagine that being married and being a parent, neither one of them really get easier. You just, you just get better at those things. I think that's a really good, I'll apply to, it never gets easier to be an uncle. I just get better at it right now. (laughs) Very true with parenting, but I'm in the in the not very good at it yet stage. So yeah, I don't forward to those days when I get better. <laughs> yeah. I don't envy you. Like, um, it was, it was my, it was my dad's 60th birthday a couple weeks ago and I was in my hometown and my nephew, my, my almost three-year-old nephew and I's job was to go get an ice cream cake and go get balloons, you know? And so we go and get the ice cream cake. It's all good. We get him some ice cream, all that. It's good. And we go to the store to get the balloons and he's instantly like everywhere, like not walking to the balloons. (laughs) And finally we find the balloons. So we get the balloons and then he tries to like just walk to the front of the line because he knows like he's got to be in line. And I go, no, no back. These, these people are in line. We have to wait. And he goes, okay. And of course we're standing right next to the little matchbox car aisle (laughs) <laughs> so then he starts pulling matchbox cars off the the thing and so I was like okay pick one I'll get it for you and that was and this was only like five minutes and I don't know how my sister does things like take him to buy groceries it it's it's an adventure every time <laughs> awesome so what is the best thing you've read in the last say six months to a year uh, you know what I just finished was a book called um, Better Than Carrots or Sticks, and it's by Douglas Fisher and Nancy Fry and Dominique Smith, I believe, and it's about restorative justice um, practices in schools, and it was excellent. I've had in-person training on restorative justice, uh, but you know, an in-person training, sometimes you you forget some of the tenants or you forget some of the details. And so then to read through that again was excellent. And I really feel like if you haven't had the chance to have um, the in-person training, that book lays things out really well just for how to deal with um, behavior issues in your class and at your school. And it's a really different way of of going about like classroom management and, and dealing with behavior uh, trying to think of how I could could summarize it quickly, but um, it it definitely focuses much more on like restoring relationships and making sure that that students are heard and they have a chance to like repair harm if they've done harm and not just saying okay well, you messed up you're gone you messed up I'm kicking you out or you messed up you're you're suspended. The focus is much more on like, okay, you messed up and you hurt somebody. What can we do to, to fix that? And how can you, um, you know, make a plan to, 
do something different next time. So much, much more time consuming than assigning detentions or suspending kids. But I think it's really powerful. Yeah. Okay. So this is broad and you can take this however you want, but what advice would you give to a teacher who's struggling? Um, I feel like when teachers are struggling, it's, it's kind of one of two things. It's either with classroom management, <laughs> that can get really frustrating. And so I would suggest that book. I'd suggest that um, Better Than Carrots or Sticks. I think it's, it's a really powerful book for teachers. Um, or teachers struggle with just, uh, you know, administration, just piling things upon them and just having these expectations of them that are just impossible. And, uh, goodness, in that, in that situation, I would just say, find other teachers that you can rely on and maybe other teachers you can work with and share the load a little bit possibly, or even just kind of, you know, blow off some steam and get a cup of coffee or (laughs) do something so that you're not, uh, feeling like you're, you're so alone in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. Those are both, both good pieces of advice. And I, and, you know, coming back to the Instagram community, I think that's, that's a place where I feel like at times when I'm overwhelmed, I can go there and, and, you know, look at, see what people are doing and, and, you know, there's always somebody that's going to make me laugh too. So I know I love Instagram. I love teacher Instagram. It's the greatest. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and, and it's funny how many, you know, the majority of the teachers that, you know, we've interviewed the last couple of months have been, I, that's how we've connected was through Instagram. And like, yeah, they're always like, every single one is like, Hey, just text me if you need something. Hey, just, you know, call me whenever, you know, even, even Joe Dombrowski is always like, Hey, if you ever need anything, like just text me, we'll talk like, and for, for a guy that's got as many followers as he does and is out there as, as he is, he's the most down to earth guy, like just super, and just just loves what he does. So I, I think mm-hmm. that community is really, really important for teachers. Teachers love to help people. That's why we became teachers, because we love helping people and, and teaching people. And so I think that's part of why that community mm-hmm. is so great, because everybody truly does want to help each other. Yeah, for sure. So, all right, what is your proudest accomplishment to date? I would have to say getting my, my master's in history I walked when I was, I think, 39 weeks pregnant, and then I had my son the next week, and <laughs> that period of time was, was I felt like I could, I could do anything. I finished a school year, finished a master's, had a baby, and I was just like, Wow, yes. that's, yeah. <laughs> I could do anything. Oh, my God, that must have, man, I can't, I mean, I'm trying to picture you, you know, walking across the stage just belly. <laughs> oh my goodness. I bet there's some really good, some really good pictures though. It's probably... I was like, well, it's a good thing that these robes come in maternity size because <laughs> that made it. Yeah, for sure. So before we ask the last question, um, where can people go to connect with you and find you? My main thing is my YouTube channel and it's called Too Cool for Middle School. And I put up videos at least weekly. And I've got about, I've got about 250 videos at this point. I think I have over 250. And one thing that I think is is sort of helpful about my channel is that I started it four years ago when I was a 
relatively new teacher. So you can go back to old videos and, and just like watch me struggle. <laughs> just <laughs> watch the process of me trying to figure out my life as a teacher. Um, I, you know, filmed as I was pregnant and going through that process of being a teacher while you're pregnant and getting my master's. I've got a lot of videos about getting your master's at the same time as you're working. So I feel like at this point, I've got quite a bit of content that can apply to almost any situation. Um, so if you ever are in need of just some advice and some help, the whole purpose of my channel is just to be like a big sister and just tell you about my experiences and try to make it easier for you as you're going through it. So that's that's my main area. And then I also have Instagram, which I feel like I'm, I am on constantly doing stories and that's where you can see my son and just kind of like the behind the scenes of my life. And, you know, those, those days, those teacher days where you're struggling and you're like, let me just be honest about this. So I'm also too cool for middle school there. I have a blog that's too cool for middle school, Facebook, Twitter. If you just Google too cool for middle school, I think you can find me on pretty much every platform that is your preferred source of, of social media. Yeah, I, I feel you though, because this is, uh, must be fi episode 52, I think, or 53 that we've done on the podcast. And I've gone back recently and listened to some of yeah. the first ones. And I'm just like, oh, I just like cringe at how awkward we were <laughs> and like how, how chopped up and, but growing, growing in that and, and getting to have the conversation, like you said, it's, I'm, I'm glad that people will get to be like, look back to see where we we are too mm -hmm. and also too I feel like it's good because you know we've been saying the same things for like a year and a half now and now that we're getting a lot more teacher guests like they're saying some of the same things that we were saying so it, it feels good that you're you you know you're a part of that community and you know you're on the right track when mm -hmm. ev every teacher that comes on talks about you know being authentic and the importance of relationships and 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 those things I think is really nice. So we will yeah. definitely, we will, we will put as many links on the show notes as Google will let us find. <laughs> you, so that way everybody can just click on it and find it. So, um, yeah. Final question is what do you want your legacy to be? I definitely want my legacy to be that my students come out of my class knowing more about themselves, knowing more about their own history and knowing more about the world and knowing how to put that into action and how to use knowledge and use their education for good in the world. And if I could even extend that out to other teachers, that's what I try to to leave in my wake on social media and YouTube and, and Instagram, just showing teachers how to use all that knowledge that you've got. You guys are all smart, smart people with tons of education. How can we use that to change the world for the better? Awesome. Megan Forbes, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me on.